The greatest line in history. You know, I know that you know that I'm a fan of good books and good movies. I love good books and good movies, and I know that you can relate to that. Many of you have had conversations with me about some of the great books you've read, some of the great shows and movies that you've watched. And I know that one of the reasons we love those shows or those books or those movies is in part because of the writing. And I mean not only the the sort of plot, how the plot is written out for the movie, how, how it plays out, but I mean specifically the script. And even more so, those, those one-liners that make the script so incredibly memorable. Some of you, in fact, remember movies from years and years and years ago, not because you remember every detail of the movie, but because you remember that line from that scene. I think you know what I'm talking about, amen? I'm going to put up a couple lines now, and we're just going to play a little game. Now, I'm going to be candid here. I started with some oldies because we have a church that's, you know, diverse, right? So we're going we're to play along just a handful of these, see how we do. Okay, what's the first one there, boss? What we have here is a failure to communicate. Cool Hand Luke. Oh, everybody goes, who's Cool Hand Luke? That's Paul Newman, right? A stud in the 60s, right? So we were watching that the other day, and Sarah goes, is that Matthew McConaughey? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, good-looking dude back in the day. What's the next one? Play it again, Sam. You played it for her. You can play it for me. That's Humphrey Bogart. Yes, Casablanca. What a great movie. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, all right, so we're going to kick it up a notch, get a little more recent. Okay, what's the next one? Oh, you're going to need a bigger boat. Jaws. Yeah, that's a classic, right? He, like, walks back into the, into the boat. You're going to need a bigger boat. What's the next one? Houston, we have a problem. Apollo 13, Jim Lovell says, Houston, we have a problem. If I was in a spaceship... Floating through space and half of it blew up. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. No, I would be screaming like a maniac, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. We would be screaming together. You can't handle the truth. Few good men, right? What a great, I'm not going to do it the way he does it because, you know. You get, the, you get the gist. There are so many great movies that have been played for us that we have enjoyed and some of these lines by the way some of these lines are not even in the script some of these lines were ad-libbed and they're just so memorable that you and I years and years after having seen the movie associate that movie by that one line now follow me here I want to turn a corner and I want to say this as many great one-liners as there have been in movies and books and shows that we've enjoyed throughout history there have been no one-liners as important and as influential as this one I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me That's a one-liner that has changed people ever since it has been spoken and has been more memorable than any other one-liner that's ever been shared. I've got three points to share with you this morning from our passage. And the first point is going to be this, the promised destination. 
the promised destination. Look again at your text, if you would. Verses 1 through 4 read like this. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again that I can take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. So the promised destination is the first point that we see. And I love how it starts off. It starts off with Jesus telling the disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. In view of what is about to take place historically, namely the shame, the mockery of the crucifixion, Jesus tells his disciples not to be troubled in their hearts. Now, I know that you know that if you've lived a life longer than 10 years, you know what it means to be troubled in heart. If you've lived a life of any length whatsoever, you know what it means to have a troubled heart. Now, maybe not like these guys, Maybe it's a different degree. Nevertheless, you and I know what it means to have a troubled heart. When the Bible refers to heart, it's using a word that is centered around the person. In other words, who we are emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually. And this is so relevant here. Emotionally, the disciples are aware that Jesus is about to leave them intellectually they're trying to wrap their minds around everything that he's teaching them spiritually their faith is being tried in this very moment ever been there so how does it begin this talk that jesus is giving them don't let your hearts be troubled all that you are emotionally intellectually and spiritually don't let your hearts be troubled He's graciously acknowledging the fact that these men are about to go through one of the most trying times in their lives. And this isn't anything new. This is something that humankind has been dealing with ever since creation. We all have had bad days. Some of us are having a bad year. Amen. We have our challenges. Some of us are having a bad season. We've got anxious thoughts and difficult feelings. Granted, maybe not like what these men are about to experience historically speaking, but nevertheless, let's be honest, you and I know what it means to have an anxious heart. But while acknowledging the illness, namely the anxious heart, Jesus also gives the remedy or the antidote to this illness and its faith. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled What's the answer? Believe in God and believe also in me. Listen, write this down. Faith is the thing that calms our anxious and troubled hearts. Faith is the thing that calms our anxious and troubled hearts. Not because faith in and of itself is something special, but because faith connects us to the living and glorious God who cares for us. You need to hear me here. Faith in and of itself is not something that's special. Well, I know I've got faith, but in whom or in what? You see, faith is the thing that connects us to the source. Not just faith in general, 
but faith in a particular person, his abilities, and perhaps most importantly, in the time of anxiety, to the fact that he cares for us. I'm going to share with you a couple of verses that I love personally. One is Psalm 55, 22. Psalm 55, 22, it says, Cast your burdens on the Lord, and he will sustain you. What a beautiful verse. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Another one is wonderful, just like it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Cast your cares upon the Lord, because he cares for you. For me? Yes, for you. That's what the scripture says, that we should cast our cares on the Lord, not because he's indifferent, not because he's apathetic, not because he's far away and and incapable of being reached. No, we cast our cares upon the Lord. Why? Because our God cares for us. We don't just have faith in general. We have faith specifically in a God who is able and a God who loves, and a God who cares. Church, do you have enough faith to go to God in times of trouble? In times of anxiety? Do you swell up with pride and say, I can get myself out of this situation. I got myself in it. I can get myself out of it. I'll figure it out on my own. I know a lot of people who are still trying to climb out of a hole with that mentality. Or do you go to God humbly and say, God, I'm here. I'm humbling myself. I need your help. Help my faith. Help me trust that you care for me. Jesus continues and he says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus is obviously referring to heaven here. This is the Father's house in which there are many rooms, so to speak. The Father's house is heaven. That's what Jesus is referring to. I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to, as it were, prepare a place for you. D.A. Carson writes this, my father's house refers to heaven, he writes, and in heaven are many rooms, many dwelling places. The point is not that lavishness of each apartment, but the fact that such ample provision has been made that there is more than enough room for every one of Jesus' disciples to join him in his father's house. Church, I think what Jesus is saying by way of this beautiful language to which we can relate is this, there's room. There's room. There will not come a time in history when we receive, like the Jehovah's Witnesses tried to convince us of in 1914, that there's only enough room for this many people. That's a false doctrine built upon a false predication built upon a false translation of the Bible. That's why we don't support and believe and follow the Jehovah's Witness doctrine. We don't follow the Watchtower Society. We follow evangelical Christian-inspired Bibles. 
It's not about what some cult says. It's about what a faithful translation of what Jesus said. And what Jesus said is there's room for you. There's room in my Father's house for you. Naturally, this raises a question. Thomas asks, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Well, we've talked about the promised destination. That's, that's heaven. But this leads to our second point then, the promised way. Now, our second point is going to help us get to the gist of this morning's message. And it's seen in John 14, 6. You get it. And there's a sense that one-liners cut through all the noise. They cut through all the sound, and they get right to the point with our hearts and our minds. They're memorable because they're good. And because they're good, they're memorable. They affect us. As I said before, there hasn't been a one-liner that's changed lives or made an impression like that of John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way to Thomas. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a one-liner that has led people to Christ and confidence, to salvation and security, to sainthood and sanctification. Let's observe what Jesus says here in response to Thomas because I think it's important. He asks, we don't know the way, Jesus. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus' response is, as you already know, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Let's take a moment and break that down. First of all, Jesus says, I am the way. Jesus doesn't tell Thomas, come on, Thomas, think about it. I've been teaching with you guys about three years. You can remember what I've said about this way or that way. Oh, he doesn't say that, does he? Jesus doesn't point at a way either. Jesus says what? I am the way. Jesus is the way to God. There is no other way. But I think there might even be something else going on here historically. All of you know, if not at least most of you, that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And as it was written in Hebrew, about 200 years before Jesus came on the scene, a man named Alexander the Great was going around the world, conquering the world, doing what we call Hellenization, making everything Greek. And as a result, Greek became what we call the Koine language, the common language. As a result, they took the Hebrew Bible and they translated it into Greek. It was about 72 scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. And because it took 72 scholars to do this, just a couple hundred years before Jesus came, they referred to the Greek version of the Old Testament as the Septuagint. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, there are no titles. So as they went through the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, they started giving everything titles, names. Genesis, beginning. When they got to the book of Exodus, which you are very familiar of, it's the story of the deliverance of God and his people from bondage in Egypt and out of slavery to the promised land. It is the redemptive act in the Old Testament. When they get to the book of Exodus, in Greek they say, we're going to call this book Echodos. Prefix meaning out of, and hodos means way. 
Now, I don't know if it's looking too much into this, but I think there's sort of an underlying factor here. When Jesus says to them, Ego e mi, hold on. He says a word that I know these Jewish guys can identify with. They go, oh, that's the title of the book of God's redemption of his people. Guys, I'm the way. It's not just what God has done in the past. I am the way. I am not some way. I'm not one way, but I am the way. That's the first thing that Jesus says to them. And in so doing, I know that he's pulling an illustration from the sacred scriptures to say, I'm not only connecting to the old covenant, but I'm telling you in so doing that I am the new covenant. So he's not only the way, he says, secondly, I am the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. And get this, Jesus is the truth because Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. It says this in the beginning of John's gospel, doesn't it? In the beginning was the word. Jesus is the message God wanted to say. And so when Jesus comes on the scene in John 14, 6, in discussion with his disciples, he says, I am the truth. Because he is the supreme revelation of his Father. He doesn't merely teach truth, which certainly Jesus does teach truth, but he doesn't merely teach truth. Jesus is the truth. On the heels of postmodernism, the postmodernism in which we live today, this is definitely a hot topic. One author writes this, knowledge, truth, meaning, and morality are, according to postmodernist thinking, culturally constructed and relative products of individual cultures, none of which possess the necessary tools or terms to evaluate the others. In other words, everybody has their own truth and no one can objectively critique the other. But I'll go further still. We not only live in a time when truth is relative, we also live in a time when truth is irrelevant. What matters today isn't facts but feelings. Not objectiveness but emotionalism. If you want to make yourself known or heard, then smoke and fury and violence are the order of the day. Regardless of whether or not you're right, do what you want so that you can be heard. Today, truth and rightness have nothing to do with anything. But Jesus, for the Christian, is truth. You and I, as Christians, don't have the privilege or right away to construct our own view of truth or what is right for one while it might not be right for another. Truth is truth is truth. And we are not granted by the Scriptures or Jesus the right to negotiate on this topic. Now, the reason we like to negotiate on this topic is because we're preferential, aren't we? There are some things that Jesus says that we love and adore. And there are some things that Jesus says that we find difficult and hard to palate. But he doesn't ask us whether or not we like this teaching or that. Jesus says, I am the truth. And if you would be my disciple, then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. 
Jesus says, I am the truth. To be a Christian means to hold unwaveringly to Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus Christ says, I am the life. I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. This shouldn't surprise us. In John chapter 11, you may recall from the raising of Lazarus, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Or how about John chapter 10, verse 10, a beautiful verse that reminds us of Jesus' life-giving ability by saying this, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus and life go together. Not only eternal life, which is Jesus' point here, right? In my Father's house, there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. He's talking about heaven, and he's talking about eternal life. So yes, of course, we're talking about life eternal. But to be a Christian, say amen, to be a Christian on this side of eternity means to have a kingdom life of meaning and purpose and design, not tomorrow, but today. Today, you and I should be living the kingdom life in the midst of a kingdom that is foreign, in the midst of a kingdom that we're sojourners in. We're passing through. This is our hotel room, if you would, because we have a greater place we are going to, not just this one. If this is all that we have hope for, Paul said, we are of all men to be pitied the most. But we don't. We have eternity to look forward to. And that's why we live the life that we do. Because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. And Jesus is the life. And so Jesus finishes this amazing statement by saying, And no one comes to the Father except through me. Church, say amen if you're listening. Jesus is the way. So no one is in hell today because Jesus rejected them. Church, Jesus is the truth. So no one is in error today because Jesus refused to preach the truth. Because Jesus is the truth. Church, Jesus is the life, so no one is sitting at home with a life that's falling apart because Jesus isn't enough. Jesus is the life. What you and I are called to recognize is that when we see Jesus, he tells us in so many words that everything we thought was true, everything we thought was the way, and everything we thought was a valuable and important life comes to nothing in view of who he is. Everything that we believe, everything that we say, and everything that we do must be done in view of who Christ is. Nothing else matters. How does that unfold in our life? Well, that leads to our last point, and that is this, the promised success. This is verses 8 through 14, so if you'll look at it with me very quickly, we'll read it just to wet our palate. After this response, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. You know, Jesus just keeps taking them deeper, Right? Don't be anxious. Believe in God. Believe in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. Well, 
how can we know where you're going? How can we know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the light. And Philip said, okay, fine, 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 fine. If you show us, give us a glimpse of God. If you give us a glimpse of God, then we'll believe. You get the thing here, right? It's always, it's always one more thing. Jesus, because he's gracious and he's kind, he says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I want to talk to you about promised success. To finish this great passage, Jesus assures the disciples in yet another way. Not only will the disciples be safe in the kingdom in the next life, but they will have kingdom success in this life too. Let me ask you a question. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? What would you leave this worship service and do today if you knew you couldn't fail? We're talking about success here, kingdom success. Jesus first reminds the disciples and Philip that to see him is to see the Father. Not because they're the same person, but because while they're two distinct persons, They are one in the Trinity, a point that we are going to continue next week with God the Holy Spirit, who Jesus says is our helper. But for now, if you look at verse 12, verse 12 testifies to what the apostles and those who followed Christ would accomplish in his name and by his strength. It may sound strange to hear Jesus say these words, greater works than these will you do. That's kind of intimidating, right? Jesus himself, the one with whom we are amazed, says to his disciples, and by virtue of that to us, you're going to do greater things than I did. But it isn't that daunting when you take a look at this statement in light of God's word. Think about it. None of the apostles walked on water or fed 5,000 or raised a dead person like Jesus raised Lazarus after he was dead for four days. But, on the other hand, Acts chapter 2 tells us that when Peter preached the gospel publicly for the first time, it was crowded in Jerusalem because it was Pentecost, and 3,000 people came to Christ. 
There's no record whatsoever of Jesus having a response like that during his ministry. And that's not to delineate Jesus. That's not to play down Jesus. That's just to say that Jesus served the Father's purpose. And when his ministry and mission was accomplished, he empowered his apostles and his church to do great work so that those who would see the work that the apostles and church did would know that there was a power in the church that was different from the power that was in the world, namely Jesus himself. Think about it. All the things that Jesus doesn't accomplish in the Gospels, he accomplishes through his apostles in the letters in the New Testament. So they're going to do great kingdom work. That's what Jesus is saying. I gathered you 12, and I walked around, I taught, I healed, etc. And what you are going to do in view of that is going to be remarkably better. And then Jesus addresses their prayer life. Verses 13 and 14 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus says these words, in my name. What does this mean? Well, it means a couple of things. It's going to come up here on the screen. First of all, when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name because we are acknowledging his lordship. We don't pray in the name of this God or that God. We don't light candles with pictures on them that we pick up from Winn-Dixie next to the cinnamon rolls. We don't believe that there's anything magical or saintly in the wax. We don't rub beads. We don't kneel and face the east. We don't do any of that nonsense because those things are not found in the Bible. What we find in the Bible are people praying to the Father in Jesus' name by the power of the Spirit. The first reason we pray in Jesus' name is because when we pray in Jesus' name, we are demonstrating our reliance on him as Lord. We're humbling ourselves, and we're acknowledging who he is in the universe. The second reason that we pray in Jesus' name is because we're acknowledging his will. What would it mean to pray in someone else's name? if we didn't align ourselves with that person's will. When I ask the question like that, I think many of you suddenly become aware of your prayer life. It isn't a magical formula. This is not a seance. We're not waving a wand like Harry Potter. If we say it like this and wave the wand, it's going to happen. That's not the way it works. When we say, in Jesus' name, we are saying to God, in Jesus' name, that we are humbling ourselves under his lordship and that we are praying that his will will be done. We are saying, Lord, I'm second and you're first. I'm praying this in Jesus' name. That's what we're saying. To pray that way means to align ourselves with his lordship and will that he might be glorified in all that we say and all that we do. So logistically, it's important that we note that prayer has a purpose and prayer has a design. I know some people that pray to Jesus 
And there's nothing wrong with that. Technically speaking, the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Technically, it is not wrong to pray to the Father, to pray to the Son, or to pray to the Spirit. Technically, that is not wrong. Biblically, however, we are given a design. And the design is that we pray to the Father in Jesus' name by the power of the Spirit. When Jesus taught people to pray, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, when you pray, pray something like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So he directs us toward God. And then later in his ministry, he teaches us that when we pray, we should pray in his name. So it's not wrong to say, Father, thank you for for sending Jesus to die for me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Spirit, thank you for working your work in my life. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's, There's nothing wrong with that. It's quite beautiful, in fact. But technically... While it is right, logistically, we're really taught to pray to the Father in Jesus' name by the power of the Spirit. But understand that the phrase, in Jesus' name, is not a magical formula. Just because you say, Jesus, I am claiming a new house and a new car by March in Jesus' name, doesn't mean you aren't going to be driving the hoopty and renting the apartment in March. Okay? See what I mean? We are misled by the name it and claim it theology that's become so common today. We believe, too many of us, some in a small degree, some in a greater degree, that if we just speak it into existence, it will happen. That's not biblical. God's will will be done. And our prayer life is about aligning ourselves with God's will, not telling God that our will better be done. Now, I know that's challenging for all of us, and the more we pray, the more difficult it gets sometimes, right? How about that verse in in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, uh, pray for your enemy and those that persecute you? I don't know if you've ever prayed for your enemy. It's hard to hate somebody you pray for. Our prayer life is meant to be an incredible gift from God. A means by which he works out his grace in our lives. A means by which he works out his sanctifying process. He makes us more and more like Jesus. So that after five years, ten years, fifteen years of being a Christian, we look back and we go, man, look how God has grown me. But if we've been a Christian all that time and we haven't grown, I'm wondering if we're keeping everything to ourselves except letting God have our salvation. God, thank you for saving me. I'll handle the rest. It never works out well. Never. Let me tell you something. I'm a lousy husband. I need God to tell me and teach me and help me to be a husband. By my own barometer, I'm amazing. (laughs) But by his barometer, I fall woefully short. By my barometer, I'm an amazing dad. But by his barometer, I can do so much better. By my barometer, I have forgiven so many people. 
But by his barometer, he reminds me every now and then because I turn a corner in Publix and there they stand. <laughs> and the flesh comes up, right? If they say something, I'm going to throw an elbow. I'm going to bless them in Jesus' name. Open hand. Amen? Some of us need to get on our knees and say, God, take this from me in Jesus' name. Because this is in accordance with your will, that I don't harbor unforgiveness, that I aim at being a great dad, that I aim at being a great husband. If you're not married and you don't have kids, that you aim at being a great man, a great woman, a great Christian. That's God's will for your life. We don't have to, we don't have to say, I- I've sent out a search party for God's will. I can't find it anywhere because it's here. I love what Deuteronomy 30 says. You don't have to send someone to heaven or down to the pits of the earth because God has revealed himself to you. It's close to us, Moses says. How close is it? It's as close as this book. We don't have to go looking for it. All we need to do is be patient enough and calm enough to pray. Lord, if there's something you need to say to me, say it in Jesus' name. Lord, if there's something I need to learn, teach me in Jesus' name. 